Welcome to the Thriller Fiction Podcast, your source for gripping and twisty stories in a serialized format. And now, here's your host, Jim Heskett. Welcome, welcome, friend, to another episode of the Thriller Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Heskett, as you obviously already know. But since, you know, we haven't talked in a few days, I thought it might be nice just to reintroduce myself. How you doing? How's the family? How's your garden? Is your garden doing well? I don't know. I'm just making idle chat here. Anyway, so this week, what we're doing, we are reading the first chapter of the novel Casino Cartel, which is, as published, book two of the Micah Reed um, series in the chronological edition that we're actually reading from. We're more than halfway done. Casino Cartel used to be known by the name Sallow City. That's Sallow, S-A-L-L-O-W. But I recently renamed a few of the books to put them better in line with the series. Uh, Salo City was a very clever title, um, but it didn't make any sense. Or, well, I mean, it made sense to me because I'm the one who thought of it, but it's not uh, very obvious what it means. And Casino Cartel is a much better descriptor of what you'd actually find in the book. So today we're going to, I say we're reading the first chapter, but what we're actually reading is the prologue because um, it's where the story begins. I know in some books, you know, like in uh, thick fantasy epics, usually the prologue has nothing to do with anything and is just like 45 pages of stuff that doesn't actually matter. But uh, in Casino Cartel, the, the prologue actually does matter and it's where the story begins. But I think you'll see why it's a prologue after we get going. So what we've been doing all this season is reading a chapter, the first chapter, and then afterward having a little conversation about that chapter and how it fits into the book and into the series. So let's go ahead and do this, and I will see you on the other side. Prologue Danny Garofalo shed his latex gloves and sunk into the chair in the tiny break room at the rear of the morgue, back aching. He'd been on his feet for nearly three straight hours bagging and tagging. But that's what happened when they didn't double-check vacation time requests, leaving him the only forensic tech out of three in the Genesee County mortuary for this entire week. He'd always thought late shift would be the slow shift, but not so much. Danny pondered his half-eaten hoagie nestled in the waxed paper next to his laptop and decided his stomach wasn't up to the task of finishing it. Maybe later. The screensaver sent swirling colors and patterns across his laptop, lulling him into drowsiness. Danny wondered how long he could sit here, letting his unfinished tasks languish until the guilt of laziness would strike him. Those forms weren't going to complete themselves. Before he could find his answer, the door at the far end of the room opened. Lights bounced off a dozen stainless steel surfaces, those harsh and buzzing fluorescents. The latch shut with a clack, and in front of the door now stood a rotund black woman with tidy rows of gray braids clenched to the top of her head. Despite the severe hair, she wore a kind and wrinkly smile with black eyes like marbles. Looked mid-fifties, maybe. Sixty tops. But she was also wearing a red visitor badge around her neck. Visitors at this time of night meant someone official. Most families of the deceased came during the day when the medical examiner was present. Danny got to his feet, trying not to grunt from the aches in his back and legs. Hello? She stretched, grimacing. 
I always think the flight here from DC is going to be a hop and a skip, but it ends up feeling like I've been pushing a boulder up a hill all day. If you flew into Detroit, he said, I can understand. It's hell getting out of that airport. I fly in and out of Bishop when I can. She grinned and a roller coaster of weird silence followed. Obviously, she wasn't here to talk about airport convenience. Can I help you, ma'am? She dug into her purse and flipped open an ID, Department of Justice. Are you the medical examiner? He eyed the badge. I'm just a tech, Mrs. Please, call me Anita. Well, Anita, the examiner leaves around five most days or afternoon on Friday if she's had a wet lunch. Danny felt stupid for saying that, but Anita smiled politely. He cleared his throat. Is there something I can help you with? She put away the ID and adopted a serious face. I'm with missing and unidentified persons. You have a John Doe I'd like to see. Danny didn't know if he was supposed to do that, but he supposed a DOJ badge gave her the right to do whatever she wanted. He didn't mind, though, because this Anita woman seemed on the level. Had a kind of folksy air about her, like someone's grandmother baking pies and setting tea in the sun to brew. You flew from D.C. to check out a body? We could have sent you the paperwork if that's what you wanted. Thank you, she said, but I would like to see him personally. Danny's stomach yawned. He suddenly decided he wanted that hoagie after all. Sure, Anita, that's no problem. Do you have a reference number? She handed him a folded piece of paper with a number on it, and he escorted her to his workstation. He tried to log into the system, but for some reason she was making him nervous, and he fat-fingered his password a couple of times. Felt a little weird as she watched over his shoulder. Maybe she wasn't technically supposed to see this without a written request, but Danny made the executive decision. If they were going to leave him here alone, that meant he was in charge. Got it, he said. Your guy's right over here. Danny pointed at cold chamber C. He guided her back through the maze of steel gurneys and opened the door. A fog of wet and frigid steam rushed out, quickly dissolving in the air. This one's been here a while. We were about to get rid of him and transfer him to a bigger facility. I'm here just in time? Danny nodded. You sure are. Chamber D is unusable because of the power outage last month. Capacity issues. I understand, she said. Have the police concluded their investigation? Cops haven't been by yet at all. She raised an eyebrow. Is that normal? He's been here for days. Danny emitted a little chuckle. You don't know Genesee County. The body was on top of a steel gurney in the back left of the chamber, wrapped in a white bag. He put a hand on the bag, then paused before rolling it back. I should warn you, Anita. His face is intact, but the rest of him is... I don't know how else to say it. He's in rough shape. Your John Doe was torn to pieces, burned, cut, shot, the whole nine yards. I haven't seen too many chewed up this bad before. Anita smiled her kind and toothy smile. I've been doing this a long time, dear. I don't think you'll be able to shock me. He wasn't sure about that, but one way or the other, they would both know in a moment. Danny peeled back the bag over John Doe's face. He tried his best to hide the mass of meat that constituted the body from the neck down. Maybe she could handle it, but he didn't want to have to see it again. He got an eyeful of the charred flesh around the neckline, and he changed his mind about his half-eaten hoagie. It wasn't often that a body could make his stomach squirm. Anita bent over, her face scrunched up in concentration. Dark eyes flittered over the man's features. The body she was examining was approximately 30, with brown hair and brown eyes, Caucasian. Good-looking guy, or at least he had been before someone had drained the life out of him. 
Anita took a business card from her purse and slipped it into Danny's shirt pocket. If the police do get off their butts and come by to investigate, please call me. No problem, he said. I can do that. She then sighed as she slipped a cell phone from her pocket. Bad news, Danny asked. Not so much for me, but for someone else. I was really hoping I was wrong about this one. She dialed the number and lifted the phone to her ear, gave Danny a glance before the call connected. Frank, it's your little sister. Yes, yes, but that's not what I called you for. I'm in Michigan. Flint, exactly. That young man who works for you, what's his name? The one you introduced me to last Christmas. Danny crossed his arms, intrigued. So this woman had some personal connection to this body. It seems strange for someone in the DOJ to come all the way from Washington to identify a random John Doe. But the more Danny thought about it, the more he understood how everything lined up. The way this kid was torn to pieces, it had to be a mafia killing or something like that. Terrorist, maybe. Or perhaps the government themselves had done it. It wouldn't surprise Danny one bit. Right, she said into the phone. Micah Reed, that was his name. Something caught my eye on a standard MUP search yesterday, and I came out here to Flint to examine it. She paused, nodding as she listened. Her fingers gripped the edge of the gurney as she pursed her lips. That's the thing, Frank. I know this will be hard for you to hear, but I'm staring at Micah's dead body in a morgue right now. And there you have it. That is the first chapter, or the prologue, rather, of Casino Cartel, book two in the Micah Reed series, or chronologically, the um, like sixth book, or seventh book. Because after this, we have Blood Thief, Stone Deep, the now timeline of Prison Runner, and then Shot Caller, and that's it. The um, There are no further Micah Reed books, at least as of the time of this recording. So let me explain something. Why is this a prologue and not a chapter one? Well, first of all, because it, it um, features two characters we've never seen before, Danny Garofalo and Anita, who you find out at the very end of the chapter is Frank Mueller's uh, little sister. So I think it makes sense from that perspective to have this be a prologue because we've never seen these people before. And even though both of them are later going to appear in the story, I think this gives some nice context and also sets up essentially what the book is about. The book is about the fact that there's a body in a morgue in Flint, Michigan that looks like Micah Reed. Now, obviously, you know it's not Micah Reed because he um, is appears in books after this one. And he is, maybe this is a spoiler, but he is not a zombie in any of those future books. In case you were hoping that Micah reappeared as a zombie later, that's not, yeah, There's there are zero zombies in the Micah Reed series. As far as you know, wink, wink. Anyway, no, just kidding. There are no zombies. So at the time, so I wrote this book. This was the first direct sequel that I wrote in the Micah Reed series, because if you remember, I wrote Airbag Scars, put it aside, then I wrote Nailgun Messiah, and I didn't, at that time, when I had written each of those books, intend them to be tied together. I later went back and redid that, because I, if you remember, I inserted Micah into Nailgun Messiah after I initially outlined it, and then he became the person he was, and I rewrote Airbag Scars. So, this was the first direct sequel I, I wrote, and it's even though the Micah Reed books are thrillers, it's important to me that they not fall into a formula and that each one feels very different from the last. And so one thing I can say for sure about this book is that it is darker than the previous books in the series. It's probably, it's really darker than any other book in the series. 
And if you look through some of the reviews on Amazon, you'll note that people talk about how there are some gruesome scenes and it's it's kind of grisly. And actually later on, a couple of years after I published this, I went back through and I toned it down um, and I removed some of the most violent parts and, and a cup, I edited a couple scenes that I thought were kind of disturbing. I have no idea what I was going through emotionally at the time that I wrote this. Apparently something, I had some demons that needed to be exercised for some reason, but I couldn't tell you what they are. But yeah, it's definitely darker. There's a there's a torture scene. Uh, there are a couple of scenes of, of dead bodies that are mutilated. And um, although I don't go into like grisly Stephen King level of detail describing mutilated bodies, just the fact that there's a scene where you know there's a guy who's been cut to pieces. Um, it's it's pretty. It can be a little gruesome. But hopefully, I think that I balance that out with um, some humor and some light moments, particularly because. Um, even though, you know, Frank didn't appear very much in Nailgun Messiah, there's a few chapters he appears in, um, later on, you know, in the last uh, third of the book, he shows up for a few chapters. This is really the first time, um, that you see Micah and Frank and how their relationship works, how their kind of mentor mentee relationship works because they're on a quote unquote job together. You know, Frank is a bounty hunter and a bail bondsman. And Micah is a skip tracer, um, which he sort of actually functions more. Skip tracing is is the art of basically researching people on the internet, you know, looking through uh, publicly available information to find people who don't want to be found. But Micah really throughout the series functions more as, as an assistant bounty hunter. Um, and he's going along with Frank here in to, uh, to Michigan basically to investigate this curious case of the body in the morgue who looks like Micah Reed. Why is this person there? How did he die? Who killed him? Why does he look like Micah? Um, and so I think there's some good moments of levity. And also, like I mentioned before about how the earlier books chronologically in Micah's life, he was very, he's drinking and he's very down. And then in Nailgun Messiah, Micah was about four months sober. And now here he is, I don't recall exactly. He's six or seven or eight months sober. And as you read it, you can see how he's starting to become more reflective of his life. And he's starting to really consider how his past actions, he reveals something to Frank that, um, that we didn't know in the series before. But if you're reading them in chronological order, you would know because it was uh, featured in a previous book where Micah talks about the first person he ever killed and why he killed that person. Um, and that was a very... It was it's a it was a difficult scene because it's very hard for Micah to tell Frank about that, um, and I won't spoil it, so you can go read it if you haven't read Casino Cartel yet. But so there were some very real moments in the budding relationship between Micah and Frank here, and, and Micah and Frank's relationship is really important because in in Alcoholics Anonymous, a relationship between the sponsor and the sponsee is is very important one. Um, you know, your sponsor is not the kind of person who orders you around and tells you what to do, but they're there more as just a guide and, and to be available to answer questions. Um, but Frank is also Micah's boss. So he does, um, they have like a very, they're very connected and Micah's destiny is very intertwined with Frank's destiny. You know, Frank is always the, he's the grumbly old man with the heart of gold. And, um, who doesn't love that kind of character in a book or a movie? 
And, well, I think that's all I'm going to ramble on about Casino Cartel. Um, I will see you guys next week for the next installment when we're going to be reading Blood Thief when we actually get into some gritty gumshoe kind of uh, detective work. Exciting. Take care. Make sure to rate and review the show on iTunes and go to jimhaskett.com forward slash contest to see the giveaway I'm running. Take care. That's it for this episode of the Thriller Fiction Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and visit jimheskett.com for more info and free thriller books.